Turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20 uh, as we come this morning to the second commandment. Exodus 20, we'll read uh, the first six verses just to kind of get at least that much of the context. If you don't have a Bible, if you didn't bring one with you, there should be one under a chair in front of you, if not directly in front of you, within arm's reach somewhere or another. Um, So, uh, and let me encourage you as well, uh, don't put them away. Uh, you're going to need them. Uh, so if you, if, you, if you close it and set it aside um, after uh, we read our passage this morning, uh, you're going to need it back again. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Uh, it's our practice to stand uh, when we read God's Word. If you're able, would you please stand with me? Hear God's Word. Uh, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that, it is, in, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands implied of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, uh, use this your word to teach and instruct us, uh, but more and more uh, to conform us uh, into the image of Christ. Uh, Renew us, we pray. Uh, In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, So, um, in in recent weeks, um, I received a series of emails from a a particular Christian music entity out there. Um, They aren't the problem at all. Um, Inviting me to uh, the Worship Innovators Conference. Um, Now, look, um, I get it. I understand. I mean, their point was, the intent of the conference was to talk about um, introducing and using technology in worship. I, I get it. That's fine. You know, that for what that is, you know, whatever. Um, I, I don't want you to walk out of here thinking that I'm against technology. I mean, just look up. We have lights. Um, the last several weeks, we haven't um, been sweating to death because we have this really cool technology called air conditioning. Um, and I spent a whopping 40 of the church's dollars on this lapel mic so some of you could hear better. So I, we're not against that. Don't hear me. Don't walk out of here going, oh, we'll see. You know, those guys are anti-technology. However, I will say this. If there are two words that do not belong together, it's worship and innovator. Those two words have absolutely no business being put together in the same sort of sentence. The idea of innovation, introducing new uh, and, and you know, new fancy creative ideas. And there's some ways we can do that, I understand. But it's not the church's job to come up with the latest, greatest, newest, most advanced. We don't have to keep up with Apple. I mean, Apple's iPhone 12 that is, you know, what, a year, two years old is now not good enough for you. 
you should have the latest, greatest, newest iPhone 13. Because how many of us can even keep up with the 12, much less the new 13? We import that into sort of every aspect of life, even into the life of the church. There's a, a reason that we're not supposed to be engaged in this kind of innovation in worship. And, and it's from this second commandment. But I want you to notice, I want to start with something that um, might cause you more headache, more trouble, more heartache uh, than uh, most of this second commandment. I want you to look in verse 5 and notice how God is described. We're told there that God is a jealous God. Now, you and I automatically think that the word jealous means sin. So what does that mean for God? Well, the reality is, and you saw this even in our affirmation of faith a minute ago, in a lot of ways, this word has to do with zeal, eagerness for. But it's got an angle of jealousy to it. And what we need to recognize is that not all jealousy is wrong. In fact, some jealousy is actually good and right. A husband flirting with a woman who is not his wife and she gets jealous and rightly so because they actually are part of a committed, exclusive covenant relationship. And he's giving attention that rightly belongs to her to someone else. She's supposed to be jealous. That's the aim of the second commandment. In fact, that's actually the difference between the first and the second commandment. The first commandment says, don't worship false gods. The second commandment says, don't worship the true God in a false way. You see, we're in this exclusive, committed, covenant relationship with God. And, and jealousy means that a rival has been introduced to this relationship. And I am eager for there to be no rivalry. Do I need to remind you of the first two verses? God begins with, before ever giving any commandments, the Ten Commandments, I'm, I'm going to say this every single Sunday. So if you're here the whole time, you're going to get tired of hearing it. The Ten Commandments were never given as a means of gaining our salvation. They were never given to people to say, if you will do all these things, then I will deliver you. Just look at the first two verses. I'm the Lord your God who's already brought you out of slavery. I've already brought you out of Egypt. I've already delivered you from bondage in that foreign country. And now that you're out here and mine alone, here are the Ten Commandments. God has one people. And he's wholeheartedly devoted to that one people. And he wants that one people to be equally wholeheartedly devoted to him. And so the first commandment says, don't worship false gods. The second commandment says, don't worship the true God 
falsely. I want to show you, we're going to illustrate this from God's Word. Uh, turn with me to Exodus chapter 32. I told you you're going to need your Bibles handy. Um, we're going to do this a couple more times. In Exodus 32, we'll get there eventually. Um, I don't want to obviously preach the whole chapter now because we'll get to it in, I don't know, 15, 20 weeks or so. I guess that means in 2022. Um, but in Exodus 32, the people see that Moses delayed coming down the mountain. So keep in mind, they're still standing around the mountain. And Moses has kind of made some trips, but he's up on the mountain. And the people start getting antsy because Moses isn't here. And we don't know if he's coming back. We don't know when he's coming back. We don't know where God's gone. God's up there on the mountain with, with Moses. And we don't know. We don't know anything like so they get nervous, they get scared and notice what they say. Up, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, uh, we don't know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, give me all your gold. And then he fashioned it into a golden calf. Verse four. But notice what he says. The people seem to be saying, we want to break the first commandment. Now, they didn't say we want to break the first commandment. I, we understand that, right? But their request is, we need a new God. We don't know what happened to ours. Right? That's the essence of their request. But notice what Aaron says in verse 4. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. He ascribes the work of the Lord to this calf. And then he goes on. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar uh, before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the, all capital letters, Yahweh. In other words, the people said, We don't know where our God is. We need a new one. Aaron said, I'm going to give you the same God, but he's going to be in this calf. He's, he's attributing, he basically took Exodus 20 verses 1 and 2 and said, here's the one, this calf right here is the one that did the things that Yahweh said back at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. In other words, Aaron's now trying to worship the true God in this image, in this Calf. He's trying to represent the true God in this golden calf. It's a violation of the second commandment, not the first. You do realize, of course, that this, this wouldn't have been foreign to the Israelites. I mean, we saw last week, we, we glanced at the end of the book of Joshua, where Joshua tells the Israelites to put away their foreign gods. And this, is, this is at the end of Joshua's life. So, so 40 years in the wilderness, into the promised land, settling the promised land, Joshua is about to die and he says, oh, by the way, and it sounds like he's saying, you're still carrying around the dude with the falcon head. You're still carrying around that jackal god from Egypt or the dude with the eagle head. Right, Egypt had all these gods and they were always represented with some sort of animal or a, a half person, half animal 
sort of combination, sort of like the Oscar statue. They seem to still be carrying them around. So the concept of, of, of putting God into the form of some little idol, some sort of image wouldn't have been foreign to them. And yet it should have been. God wants this relationship. He's jealous to preserve the attention that rightly belongs to him from his people. God's commanding us not to reduce the infinite God to the size of an Academy Award. There's another illustration. Turn to Leviticus chapter 10. It becomes even clearer still in Leviticus 10. Um, The Israelites are still at the mountain. They still haven't moved. Nadab and Abihu are are Aaron's sons. They're priests and they have um, every right to offer sacrifices to God. But notice what happens to them. Notice what they're doing. Verse 1, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. They decided one day that they would make an offering before Yahweh. So they're worshiping the true God that he hadn't commanded. Now, here's the question. Where's the image? Where's the statue? It's not there. They didn't even try to reduce the infinite God to the size of an Academy Award. They simply offered fire, but the key phrase, which he had not commanded them. Notice what happens to them in verse 2. Fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. They're making an offering. They're worshiping God. They're attempting to worship the one true God in a way that He has not commanded them to worship Him. Without even making an image at all. Now, I I, I know maybe some of you are thinking, now wait, really? Like that sounds awfully persnickety. Like, What could possibly be wrong with some offering to God that He didn't command them uh, to offer? And, And that's the world we live in. The world we live in says, look, I mean, not only are we sort of image and video based, uh, picture based, meme based world, uh, but we live in a world that says, look, I mean, his heart was right. He was doing a good thing. It, it wasn't bad. It just, but that shows how little regard we have for God's word. The key phrase is that God hadn't commanded it. This was a way of worshiping him, not revealed by God himself. In other words, God expressly forbids being innovative in worship. The second commandment forbids representing God by use of images and worshiping him in any way 
not prescribed in his word. And that's, that's why we do what we do in worship. We do what God has commanded us to do. We read the Bible. We preach the Bible. We pray the Bible. We sing the Bible. We see the Bible in the sacraments. Now, just in case somebody may decide, look, um, it says don't make any images of any creatures. So clearly we shouldn't have any art. Clearly we shouldn't even have um, any kind of of picture or representation of of any kind of created thing, except that the priest is going to wear a robe with pomegranates on it. And there's going to be pomegranates and uh, in the tabernacle and and cherubim woven into the veil in the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to have two big cherubim on it at God's command. So clearly, God's not forbidding Van Gogh's Starry Night or Duck Decoys. Those things would be forbidden if the second commandment commandment for for was against all sorts of images, all sorts of artwork of any kind. So the second commandment, the first commandment tells us don't worship the false God. The second commandment tells us don't worship the true God in a false way through images or in any way that he has not commanded us. Why might that be the case? Can you think of reasons why God would say no images? Here's one. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Moses is sort of reiterating, they're recounting Deuteronomy's second law. Uh, They're recounting um, uh, their their interaction with God on the mountain. Uh, Verse 8. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Only take care and keep your soul diligently, diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. And you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of his words, but saw no form. God reveals himself verbally. God reveals himself in words, not through images. He didn't give them a statue. He didn't give them a painting. He didn't give them um, some sort of image to worship him by. He gave them words. How do you take an infinite and eternal God and constrain him to an Oscar? You can't represent that that infinite and and internal God in something that you can throw in a backpack or carry around in one hand. In an image, we limit what cannot be limited. There's a second reason why um, God would forbid 
our making images on the earth. Do you remember Genesis one twenty six? Some of you are thinking, no, I don't. You do. Because in Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image. We don't make images of God because we're supposed to be the image of God on the earth. He put us here for that purpose. A third reason we don't add drama or or plays or skits in worship is because worship is itself a drama it's a conversation between god and his people we have the sacraments which are the only visible sign of the gospel of grace that god has given us so the second commandment prohibits Innovation in worship, it prohibits reducing the infinite God to a finite space. I wonder how many of us are troubled by verse 5 in Exodus 20. Because once you get past the jealous God part, which is sort of speed bump number one uh, in verse 5, then there's a second Speed bump, which is visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. My guess is you're thinking, well, that doesn't sound very fair. So the father sins and like three, four generations later, they're still they're still dealing. They're still they're still dealing with their father's iniquity. There's. Several things at play here. Number one, the pattern of the father has been learned by the children. But more than that, who hates God in verse five? Like that phrase seems almost a little bit out of place. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Like that seems out of place given the rest of the second commandment unless the second commandment unless the second commandment addresses those who hate God in other words the people who hate him according to verse 5 are those who have reduced him to an image the only connection can be that those who hate him are those who have said, well, I'm going to represent him by this image. Those who violate this commandment, those who make an image of Yahweh and worship him by it or through those images, according to verse five, must be those who hate him. Does that sound strong? The Heidelberg Catechism uh, asks uh, question number 98. uh, But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? See, one of the arguments uh, during the time of the Reformation was, well, we've got all these uneducated people. There were only certain educated, you know, only certain people could read. Uh, And certainly only certain people could read and hear and understand Latin. So that was another uh, sort of limitation. And the argument was, well, as long as we have people who can't read, we need pictures. 
Because if a picture is worth a thousand words, then we can draw pictures and we can give images to the people and they can read those because they can't read the words. Here's the answer in the Heidelberg Catechism. No, for we must not pretend to be wiser than God who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. The reality is when we violate the second commandment and introduce this kind of innovation in worship, we show movies or videos and, and forget preaching, forget, leave out his word altogether. We're suggesting we know better than God does. We're questioning the value and the power and the sufficiency of God's word. It makes sense that a an infinitely perfect God would reveal himself in a perfect way. And if he chose words to be that way, who are we to come back and fix it and make it better? Even the reformers argued that word ministry was sufficient, even for a society that was largely, that largely couldn't read, that was largely uneducated. We can't contract an infinite God down to an Oscar. We shouldn't worship according, well, we should worship according to God's will only, not according to our desires. But I want to show you something else, verse 6. Mercy extends farther than judgment. Judgment to the third and fourth generation. Mercy to thousands. Don't flatten out thousands. Third and fourth generations goes this way. Not thousands horizontally. Thousands of the people that are alive right now. That means thousands of generations. Mercy extends far beyond God's judgment. The iniquity reaches three or four generations the blessing, the mercy extends. It reaches thousands of generations. Mercy is greater than judgment. We live in an image-dominated culture, video, meme sort of world where images are everything and images are everywhere. And it sort of seems reasonable. There's... I'm, there's a part of me, and maybe this is half tongue-in-cheek, but there is a part of me that, that is a little bit surprised that people haven't ever thought, well, you know what? We should start listening to sermons and count the number of words the preacher uses and, and replace them. Because if a picture is worth a thousand words, we could save a whole lot of time if we counted his words and showed three pictures instead of listening to 3,000 words. And besides, it might even be a little more enjoyable. And the pictures would be kind of... I'm a little bit surprised nobody's ever kind of thought, well, this seems like logic. If, if a picture's worth a 1,000 words, we could replace our preacher with three pictures. And call it good and move on a little faster than... We do. But we're word-centered for a reason. We're word-centered because God is word-centered. He's revealed Himself in words, not in pictures. He calls us in 1 Corinthians to use preaching as the means of gathering and perfecting the saints. Even though it was a stumbling block to the Jews 
and foolishness to the Greeks. The reality is our innovative ideas won't improve on God's idea for how we are to worship. Because the reality is this is a congregation. This is not an audience. God's the audience. We are not the audience. And so we're gathered for his honor and for his glory. And so biblical worship is inherently God-centered and word-focused. Do you, you ever go to worship, or, or this is true of us as individuals, and it's true of churches, quite honestly, like that little kid on the tricycle in The Incredibles. The Incredibles, what a great movie. Um, there's a scene where Mr. Incredible gets out of his car. Well, he's actually Mr. Parr at this time. Uh, he's not in his in uniform. Um, he gets out of his car, shuts the door, and he senses that there are eyes on him. And he turns around and looks. And it's that kid with the gum on his big wheel tricycle thing. And, and Mr. Incredible looks at him and says, well, what are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. We come sometimes to corporate worship looking for something amazing, I guess. And what we realize is we have amazing. It's his word. God, the God of the universe, who by the word of his power spoke into existence, everything that is has made himself known to you in your Bible, in your word. Our problem is we don't think his word is amazing. Our problem is we don't think that preaching is amazing. We want something more incredible, something more special. We're waiting for something amazing, I guess. You know, Jesus addressed this in Luke chapter 16. Because in Luke 16, uh, there's rich man, Lazarus, not that Lazarus, different Lazarus. Rich man and Lazarus, Lazarus dies, he's in heaven, rich man's. Uh, in the bad place. Um, there are kids here. Uh, and and th- the rich man appeals to Father Abraham like, okay, I didn't know this was real. And this is very real. So I'm going to need you to warn my family, the people that I love who are still alive. And And it would really help, actually, if you would send Lazarus back from the dead. Because that would be something amazing, I guess. And you remember what Jesus said? They have the law and the prophets. If that's not enough, raised up Lazarus won't be enough either. Okay, I'm sorry, but I'm pretty sure any of us would would be... Okay, somebody from the dead is way cool. Like, that doesn't happen very often. It's so rare. We have to listen to what he says. And Jesus says, they have the word. The word is the amazing. The word is the amazing thing that you are waiting for. Is that how we approach the simplicity and ordinariness is ordinariness a word it is now the ordinariness of word focused god-centered worship 
It's what God has called us to. If you noticed our um, call to worship, uh, oddly enough, uh, this has nothing to do with anything. I chose it uh, before Wednesday. Uh, but on Wednesday, noticed that John 4.24 is on the kids Sunday school class wall back there. Um, that we worship God in spirit and in truth. Part of what that means is our only access to God is through the Son. The perfect image of God. The one who's, if you've seen me, they've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father, Jesus said. Our only access to the triune God is through the Son. He's the only mediator between God and man. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made yourself known to us. You've uh, condescended to us in words we can read and hear and understand and know and believe. And we thank you that there is power in that word because it's yours. Uh, because it is the means that you have appointed for gathering and perfecting the saints, for reaching and equipping the lost. Father, we pray that you would grow in us uh, a hunger and a thirst for your word, a longing uh, for the amazingness that is your word. That would you root out of us uh, the, the notion, the human devised notion that latest, greatest, newest and improvedest is the best thing we could do in here. Father, we pray that your word would go forth and change our hearts, our minds. To know and to love and to follow and serve you alone. And we pray all of this in Christ, our, the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.